Good morning once again. Thank you for being here, kids. You are dismissed up to Grace Place. Thank you all for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark 14. Mark 14 is where we're going to be today. Uh, and like I said earlier, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seatbelt. You can go ahead and use that. So as you're turning there, I'd like to thank um, our hospitality team. Our hospitality team, their, their mission, their goal is to make it so that anyone who walks in here um, will leave here feeling like family. That regardless of what you, your relationship to this church when you come in, that you would leave here feeling like family. You would feel connected and welcome and cared for. And so that goes beyond just um, being there to greet you at the door, but it's caring for the space. It's caring for um, being able to answer questions. It's being able to just genuinely care about your Sunday experience and your time in this community. And so um, while that is hospitality and being hospitable is something that is um, the requirement, the expectation of all Christians, the, the hospitality team, they have a passion for it. They have a desire to serve and care uh, for this church. So everybody on that team, thank you so much for all of the ways you serve and all of the ways you, you build that community, you build that relationship uh, within our church. If you are interested in that ministry, you can use those connect cards I talked about earlier. You can circle hospitality and drop that in the offering plate later on, and Sarah will follow up with you about um, our hospitality team. So uh, thank you again to everybody on the hospitality team. So uh, this morning, as I said, we're going to be in Mark 14. Um, when I was in high school, uh, competitive poker became... Like, it was the thing. It was everywhere. Um, and online poker. Um, and I know this is church, so you guys don't understand poker, so I won't give you all the details. But um, in poker, when you are playing, especially the game that was very popular when I was in high school, Texas Hold'em, there is a move uh, in that game. There's a way of betting in that game that can change the very face of the game. It's called going all in. Uh, and what you do when you go all in, you take all of your chips, all of your money, and you say, I'm betting everything on this hand. I believe in my hand so much, I trust my cards so much that I'm willing to put everything on the line. Even if you don't have a lot of money to bet, it's more of a psychological move because you are saying, I'm putting everything on the line. If I'm wrong, I'm done, I'm going home. So I'm going to put everything in. I trust that I can beat you based on my cards. I'm putting everything on the line. And so today in our passage this morning, we see a woman who makes an all-in move with Jesus. She puts everything on the line, her most valuable possession. She puts her very livelihood, her very future at stake for Jesus. She comes to him and through her action shows that she is all in with love and devotion and worship of Jesus. And when someone makes a move like that, when someone makes an all-in kind of move, everybody around has a reaction. And so for us this morning, we have to wrestle with what is our reaction? Are we all in? And when we see someone else say, I am all in for Jesus, what's our reaction to that? Those are some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and get to work. So please, uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for this opportunity to gather together, um, to celebrate you, to enjoy your presence, to enjoy this community you have given us. Lord, um, God, as we open up your word, help us to understand, help us to focus on what you have for us. You have a reason for us to be in this chapter, to be here this morning, opening your word. So Lord, help us to be faithful to that. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts to listen and, and to respond to what you are calling us to this morning. God, we come here today ultimately to seek you, to 
be in your presence. And so, Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself this morning. God, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to jump into Mark 14, starting in verse 1, and then uh, we'll go back and talk about it. So It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. If you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So we've been walking through the, the gospel of Mark, and here we are in the last final days, even final hours of the life of Jesus. And as we've been studying Mark, we've seen Mark use this, um, use this style a couple of different times. He has this sandwich way of telling story, where he starts something, he gives you an idea, he begins a story, and then he interrupts it with something else, and then he kind of comes back and wraps it all up. And that's what we have here. In verses 1 and 2, and then down at 10 and 11, we have kind of the sandwich ends of this story. In verse 1 and 2, it says that the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Passover, is happening. It's one of the biggest holidays on the Jewish calendar. Jews from all over the world would go to Jerusalem. They were expected to be at Jerusalem. They would flock to this town to celebrate and to eat and worship and remember how God had rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt, how he had brought them out of Egypt and to the land that he had promised for them. The uh, Jerusalem at this time would be somewhere between 20 and 50,000 people, roughly. Um, it's hard to get an exact estimate back then, but it would be around 20 to 50,000, somewhere in there. During Passover, the city's population could balloon up anywhere from 200 to 500,000 people. People from literally all over the known world were there, were in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. And because of the amount of people, the Romans, who are ultimately in charge at the time, are a little bit on edge during celebrations like this. The amount of people located in one relative place, who knows what would happen. The Romans thought, what if they realize, what if they all get together and they realize just how many of them there are? What if they start an uprising? What if they start a revolution? And so it was very common for the Roman officials to add extra security. And they were very clear with the local leadership. The local leadership understood the pressure from Rome to keep things peaceful. Keep things easy going. Make sure nothing happens or else we'll replace you. If you can't control the people, we'll find someone who can. But at the same time, these religious leaders, they have had enough. They've had enough of the miracles. They've had enough of the teaching. They've had enough of Jesus. They're tired of him. They want him arrested and killed. 
I mean, think about that for a second. These men, you read the Gospels, and, and the Pharisees and scribes and, and the Sadducees, they're, they're painted as the bad guys, right? They are the antagonist in the story, rightfully so. But at the same time, these are the men who are entrusted to lead God's people. They ruled the synagogues. They were, in, they were entrusted to care for God's people in their spiritual life, and these supposed, supposedly God-honoring, devoted men are secretly plotting and scheming to have a man killed. A man who has done nothing wrong. They have been trying for three years to pin anything on him, and they can't. They have no leg to stand on. And because they know his reputation, they know the authority he carries with the people, they know his popularity, they want to do it in secret. They want to have him killed, but let's have him killed in an orderly fashion. Let's do it away from the people. We don't want an uprising. Because then it would be chaos, and if the people start rebelling against the religious leaders and, and war, inner war breaks out, then the Romans are going to get involved, and no one is going to be happy. It's going to be ugly for everyone involved, so let's keep it quiet. What starts as a plan to keep things off the radar, to get a hold of Jesus and have him killed quietly, actually turns into a parade of kangaroo courts and a public government-sanctioned execution. Because what's done in the darkness will ultimately be brought into the light. And because things play out the way they do, people from all over see Jesus die, and people from all over three days later see Jesus risen. The spectacle that ends up being made of Jesus helps spread the gospel. Because what is done in darkness, what is done in evil, what God will use for good. Things have greatly escalated throughout Mark. At this point, we are past conversations. We are past accusations. We are past attempts to trick and trap Jesus. It is a full-on conspiracy of murder. The storm cloud of darkness is forming and growing closer and closer and getting larger with each passing moment. It gets, and we see it even get a little bit worse there in verses 10 and 11. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, Jesus, to them. When they heard it, they were glad. They promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. One of the twelve, one who saw and heard and experienced Jesus in an intimate, close way that very few had. See, proximity to Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you have... Christian family members, just because you went to a Christian school, just because you show up to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. Proximity doesn't do it for you. And beyond that, Judas knew the stories. He knew all of the things, all of the things that gave Jesus his authority and gave Jesus his popularity. Judas knew them. He was there. He knew about the 5,000 and how they had been fed with a couple of loaves and fish. He was there cleaning up the leftovers. He knew. He saw Jesus walk on water. He was there. He watched him heal lepers and see the cripples stand up. He saw all of these things. He could tell the stories about what Jesus had done better than most. But head knowledge about someone doesn't make you a Christian. Head knowledge about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Faith alone in Christ alone saves and changes and gives new life. Judas had every opportunity all of the information, everything he needed to believe, everything he needed to be saved was right in front of him, and he chose to ignore it. He chose himself. He chose to have a hard heart, and he sells himself out for 30 pieces of silver. And so from here on out, Jesus, Judas is looking for his chance to hand Jesus over. 
Now, those of you who grew up in church, those of you who know how this story plays out, we, we know that the storm cloud of evil, that these priests and now Judas, this storm cloud eventually unleashes its fury. Because Judas knows Jesus will be alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers come at him with clubs and swords as if he's some kind of violent criminal. We know he is beaten and spit upon and humiliated and paraded in front of officials before finally being condemned to death on a cross. But we also know that's not the end of the story. We know that in the midst of the darkness, the light of the world shines brightest that Sunday morning in the resurrection. What was meant for evil was used for good, the good of all humanity, because the sins of the world were paid for in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In the midst of the darkness, there is light. So too, even in this story, even in these plans to trap and get Jesus, to have him killed, even in the midst of this, Mark gives us a glimpse of light gives us a glimpse of light in the actions of this unnamed woman and the beauty of her faith and her worship and devotion. And so we see in verse 3 that Jesus is in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. And he's reclining at the table and a woman shows up. He's in Bethany. We've seen this the last couple of chapters. He's been commuting into Jerusalem during the day and staying in Bethany at night. Again, thousands upon thousands of people are in this small town, and so he's staying out as far away from the crowds as he can be, really. He's been setting up camp outside of the city of God, removed from Jerusalem. He's at the house of Simon the leper. That's all we know about him. You can go dig in. All kinds of people have all kinds of theories about who this guy was. Really, this is literally all we know about him. His name is Simon the leper. Maybe the readers knew him, right? Maybe the first original readers of Mark knew who he was. We assume he's a man who had leprosy, but he's been cured. Maybe he was cured by Jesus. We don't really know. But he probably doesn't have leprosy anymore because they're not going to be living in Bethany. And just from a health standpoint, you're not going to go hang out with a leper. Lepers didn't even hang out with other lepers. Okay? Um, so this is like a nickname that he still has, and that is a bummer of a nickname. Like, hey, I'm coming over, and I'm going to bring Simon. Which Simon? Simon the leper. Like, even though he's been healed, that's still the tag on him. Even though he's healthy, and you can be in his house, and you can spend time with him, and you're not going to catch it, even though there's still that sideways, you still got it? Are you, are you really all healed? He is forever an outsider. He is forever marked as the guy who had leprosy. So we see Jesus outside the city of God at the house of an outsider, and this woman shows up. And let's be honest, at this time, women were the epitome of what an outsider is. They were treated poorly. They were not seen as equals at the time. And so we have Jesus removed from the city of God in the house of an outsider, and this woman shows up. And she does something that everyone has a reaction to. She takes a flask of, an alabaster flask of pure nard. She breaks the flask and pours it on Jesus' head. An alabaster flask, alabaster is a hard mineral, a rock. Um, it was used to hold the finest of fragrances and oils and lotions. It's, uh, it's very um, thick and it's, very, it's not very porous. You're not going to have a whole lot of evaporation there. Um, and it's, uh, it's something you can keep for a very long time and it's going to keep the contents inside good for a very long time. Mark says it's pure nard. Nard is, um, has the consistency of, it's closer to like massage oil. 
Uh, it's from a plant in Asia. We don't have time to go into it. Um, but he says it's pure. It's been filtered through. The imperfections are removed from it. It's very valuable. Mark, like, trips over himself. It's a flask. It's an alabaster flask. It's pure nard. It's very costly. Like, it's a really awkward sentence because Mark is very trying very hard to explain. It's very expensive stuff that she has here. Mark goes out of his way to explain the value. This was not something you were going to pick up at Target on the way to the party. This was not something a woman was just going to have in the bottom of her purse on accident. So when she shows up with this alabaster flask, it's intentional. At some point in her day, at some point in the previous days, she decided she was going to go do this. This was not a gut reaction to something. And we see in verse 5 that this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Putting that in perspective, a denarius was a day's wage. So this alabaster flask of ointment was worth about a year's salary. Gentlemen, show of hands, who has in the past or is currently saving a year's salary to buy your wife or girlfriend some lotion? Put your hand down, Daniel Rico. No one's going to do that, right? Maybe Daniel Rico. He is a quality man. It's ridiculously expensive. So the question is then, how did she get it? Because as a woman back then, she doesn't have much opportunity to work, let alone come up with this kind of money. So where did this come from? It's probably a family heirloom. It's probably something she was passed down to her, maybe even generations. This is the kind of thing that gets stored away somewhere. Keep this safe. This could be used as a dowry for a wedding. This could be used for somebody's burial. This was important. This was special. This was set this aside in case everything falls apart. You have this. Some of you have boxes of baseball cards sitting in an attic. Some of you have boxes of Beanie Babies sitting in an attic. Unlike those things, this has value. This you can actually sell and make some money off of. In case her life fell apart, she could always say, I have this. If everything else falls apart around me, I have this, and I'll be okay for a while. It's a safety net. And like I said, it could be a dowry for a wedding. It's her future. It's everything. It's her present. It's a tie to her past. It's her future. It is the most important, valuable thing that she owns. And she shows up, and she breaks the bottle. She doesn't need it anymore. It's never going to get used again. And it says she pours it over his head. Not a drop, not a little bit. She pours the bottle out completely. Literally, that's the word. She pours it completely out. She gave it all to him. This is an act of love. This is an act of devotion. This is an act of worship and to honor him. She held nothing back. This was not, I'll give Jesus a little bit, but what about me? I'll give him some, but I've got to protect me. I'll give him a couple of drops, but I've got to take care of me. I have to make sure my future is okay. But the bulk is mine. I'll give him some of it, but it's, it's mostly mine. This is pure devotion to Jesus. This is her all-in moment. Jesus, whatever this is worth, you are worth so much more. And you are worthy of this kind of honor. You are worthy of this kind of worship and so much more. If you read John's gospel, he tells us this, the same account. And she says, it says when she did this, she poured it on his head and she pours it on his feet. And then when she did it, the smell of the ointment lingered and filled the whole house. Nard, there's a couple of different variations of it, but it's usually a very sweet smell. So often it smells like lavender. 
to pour out a whole bottle like this in what would have been a very small one-room house in Bethany, the whole place would have smelled like it. And long after this encounter, long after these events, it still would have smelled like this. It still would have been in the air. Everyone in that room got a little bit of her worship on them. You know, you go to that restaurant, you go to that, especially like the Grecia restaurants, you walk out of there and like you still smell like the restaurant. Or like you sit by a fire and you still got that smoky smell the next day. That's what this is. This ointment, this, it would fragrant, it would be so fragrant, so pungent that it would stay on your clothes. The people who were there would be walking away that night or the next morning and still have a little bit of that smell on them. This kind of worship leaves an imprint. It leaves a mark on people just by being around it. But what kind of reaction do the people have? Do they want that smell on their clothes? It says in verse 4 that they were indignant. Why was this ointment wasted like that? Indignant is angry, disappointed, discouraged, and frustrated. Earlier on, we saw in Mark when the, the children are running to Jesus and the disciples stop the children from getting to Jesus. He scolds the disciples and he is indignant with them. He's disappointed, he's discouraged, he's frustrated and angry with them. Why was this oil wasted? What kind of question is that? Because let's be honest, it doesn't tell us exactly who is involved in this conversation, but this is the last couple of days of Jesus' life. This is right in around Passover. It's a small house. Yeah, Simon the leper's probably there, but when we talk about who's speaking here, it's the 12. It's Jesus' disciples. In John's gospel, we know it's Judas who is the one leading the charge with, this, with these accusations. But we also know that his motives were impure because John's gospel tells us that he was taking from the money box. So he wants to sell this oil so that he can be the one holding the money and he can take a little bit for himself. That's probably how he knows why we know how much it costs. Judas just comes up with it off the top of his head because he wants to be able to skim a little back for himself. So Judas, we know his heart, we know his decision, but the other 11, they know better. And really, in essence, by questioning her this way, by saying, why was this ointment wasted like that? In essence, what they were saying is, your worship is a waste. Your devotion to him is a waste. It's wrong. It's too much. It's too big. They scolded her. They talked down to her as if she had done something wrong. That word scolded is literally to snort like a horse. See, sometimes when we're around people who are truly devoted to Jesus, people who are excited about their faith, it can draw out in us a negative response based on the places our faith is weak. So when you're around that person who says, you know what, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to set up my finances in a way that glorifies God. My God is generous, so I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be generous with the way I spend my money. I'm not going to be frivolous with it, but I want to be generous because our God is generous. And you say, well, it's not very practical. And it gives a little twinge in your heart about your own generosity. That person who says, I'm going to set up my day-to-day, my weekly calendar is going to not just fit my Christianity, not fit my faith into the gaps where it's convenient, but rather I'm going to center my life around making community, making my time with God a priority, making people a priority, and I'll fit the other stuff in around that. 
I want to be in community with other people. I want to spend time with God. And you say, well, but you got responsibilities. You have things that, that has to be secondary, third maybe even. There's too many things. I'm too busy to really truly make a point to be that invested in church. That person who says, you know what, I want to live different. There are elements of social media. There are things on TV and in movies that just, they're not building me up. They're not good for my soul, so I'm going to avoid them, even no matter how popular they may be. You say, but why? It's not a big deal. I'm going to avoid putting myself into places that are easy temptations for me to sin. Even if that means I'm going to miss out on socializing with some people, I'm going to try and keep myself in a place where I'm not going to make stupid decisions. You see someone like that. You meet someone like that who is all in for Jesus. We look at people like that, people trying to live countercultural, counter to the world, and we call them fanatics. We say they're living to the extreme, and we write them off because we see in them the places we fall short. We look at people like that, and we say, that's too extreme. Moderation is key. Rather than looking and examining our own hearts and souls, it's easier to say they're too intense. They're impractical. They don't understand the way the world really works. See, it's interesting. When it comes to money, when it comes to job titles, when it comes to authority and power, gather as much as you can get. That's the message. You got to work overtime, work overtime. You got to work those holidays, do it. You got to be in 24 7 contact so your boss can always get a hold of you. Do what you got to do. But when you take that same kind of devotion and passion and you put it towards your faith, you're, you're, now you're marked as a crazy person. It's too big, it's too much. But when you read the Gospels, Jesus over and over says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your execution point and follow me. Give me everything. I want it all. He says it over and over again. And somewhere along the way, we've taken that and said, yeah, but that's what, not what it really means. When someone wants to take that same kind of focus and devotion to their faith, we somehow have turned it into a bad thing. And the disciples here, they say, well, the reason for chastising this woman is that the oil could have been sold for a large price and the money could have been given to the poor. First off, it's not theirs to sell. But this idea of wanting to serve the poor, that's a good thing. That's a noble thing, especially around this time, around the time of Passover. Caring for the poor was an emphasized element in the Jewish faith. Much like, you know, during Thanksgiving and Christmas, people tend to be more generous in those areas. It's the same thing with Passover. Now, we don't know if the, the people speaking here, the 12, if their fixation on the poor was genuine. We know Judas's wasn't. We don't know about the other 11. We don't know if it was just a convenient avenue to make women feel guilty, this woman feel guilty and demean her. But in doing so, in questioning her worship, in saying that your worship is a waste, really what they're saying is that Jesus isn't worth the extravagance. They're really putting Jesus, knocking Jesus down. Whether or not they meant to, what they're saying is he's not worth that. And so regardless of their motives, regardless of that, Jesus had enough of this conversation. He finally speaks up in verse 6. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Back off. This is good. It's lovely. What some call wasteful. What some call fanatical and irresponsible, Jesus says, it's beautiful. The lavishness of the act, the fact that she held nothing back, that she was going all in, Jesus says, it's beautiful. 
But see, it's not just about the money. This message is not just I have to give everything financially. Jesus only wants big money. Because if you flip back to the end of chapter 12, Jesus was talking about the poor widow that was in the temple, and she gives the two small copper coins. And that's all that she had. And Jesus holds her up as a model of generosity and devotion. So in chapter 12, you have a woman who gives two pennies, two half pennies. And here in chapter 14, you have a woman who gives a, a year's salary. Very different gifts, but it's the heart behind them that is similar. Full and complete devotion to God. Both women, in their own way, offer to God what is beautiful. And so Jesus clears up for everybody involved, the indignant, angry crowd, and the probably, at this point, embarrassed and confused woman, and says very bluntly, her actions are good and right and beautiful. And he addresses the objection that they raised. In verse 7, he says, you will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me with you. He addresses their objection on how to use the oil. And, but Jesus is not saying that the poor don't matter. He's not saying don't worry about them. They're always going to be around, so it doesn't matter. Right? You can take that verse out of contact. You could, you could cherry pick this verse and say, look, God doesn't care about poor people. They're always going to be around. He doesn't care if, if Christians do anything for them. But if you put it into context and you read pretty much any other part of the Bible, you know that God has a heart for the poor. God loves and cares for the weak and the poor and the set apart. He has commands in the Old Testament and he has demands on Christians to give and be generous and care for those who can't be cared for, those who can't care for themselves. Now what Jesus is saying is, look, we live in a fallen and broken world and there is always time to serve the poor. You want to care for them? Great. Amen. Go do it. But sometimes there are situations, there are events, there are moments that are special, limited time offer. Sometimes you get the moment and you might not get it back. This was a moment for him. This was a moment for her. This moment wasn't going to come around again. She wasn't going to have access to him again. In just a couple of hours, he's going to be in chains. And a few hours from that, he's going to be dead. This moment is gone. This is why, as we've been talking the last couple of weeks, you need to be on guard. You need to stay awake. Be engaged and paying attention in this life because you don't know how long you have. You don't know how many interactions you have. You don't know how many interactions that other person has left. See, sometimes God puts you in exactly the right place at the right time to be a light and to do something amazing. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which means God has set up for you moments and situations laid out ahead of time by God that all you have to do is step into them. All you have to do is acknowledge that push, that pull towards that moment. And there is good work to be done that God has already set up. He has already done the heavy lifting. You just got to show up and step into the moment. This woman steps into her moment. And so what did she do? Verse 8, Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done what she could. She has done what was available to her at the moment. Too often we think, well, what can I do to impact the kingdom? 
How am I supposed to do something important or valuable? I'm too messed up. I'm too busy. I'm too broken. I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not worthy enough. She did what she could. She didn't have time to cook him a six-course meal. She didn't have time to make him fancy new clothes. She didn't have time to, uh, different things she could have done to show her devotion and her love for Jesus. She wasn't going to be able to be with him every step of the way through what was coming. She did what she could. She had an ability to respond to Jesus in a unique way that nobody else could. This is what God wants from us. You can't do everything for everybody all the time. You alone can't stop world hunger. You might be able to feed a couple of people, though. You alone can't shelter every homeless person, but maybe you can help a few. You have the ability to make an impact on people, to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And whatever your thing is, whatever it is that God has uniquely wired and gifted and given to you to be able to do to serve others, it is important and it is good and it is beautiful. You might say it it doesn't have any major significance. I don't have any major significance. You on your own might not, but God does. There's a quote in my office uh, from a pastor. It says, God is awesome, and he doesn't need you to be awesome. He needs you to be faithful, to be obedient. A little boy shows up with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread, and Jesus does something amazing. Moses was an old shepherd with a stutter, and because of God, he is able to lead God's people to freedom. A couple of jugs of well water, Jesus turns into wine and is able to bless a whole whole community. God can do amazing things with simple, simple elements. He can take your little thing and make it go so much farther than you could ever dream if you will just show up. She did what she could in the moment. What can you do? What can you do today? How can you serve? How can you worship God in your life this afternoon, this evening, in a way that is unique to you, that you have have the ability to care and love and support and worship God through your actions, through the way he has gifted you and wired you and made you? What can you do today? But it's not just that she did what she could. Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus says that what she has done here goes far beyond just pouring some expensive oil out on my head. That what she has done is actually a step toward what Christ came to do to die for us. This anointing, this action of love and devotion and worship to honor and celebrate Jesus comes with it this whole other reality that the events that are about to take place when Jesus is arrested and tried and executed, there will be no more time. There will be no time for a proper burial preparations. It's why we see after Jesus is dead, it's why the women go to the tomb early the next on Sunday morning to prepare his body, to put spices and oils on, her, on his body to preserve it because nobody had time. He gets taken off a cross and thrown into a tomb. Jesus says what she has done is step one. We're putting this thing in motion. It's time. This anointing is a precursor of what's coming in doing this in doing what she could, in stepping into her moment and going all in, choosing to respond, she took part in something much greater than she ever could have imagined. Something that Christ says will be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. 
Why? Because this act of love and devotion and worship, this literal pouring out of herself is a reminder that the gospel and suffering are linked. They go together. The gospel is the good news of a really bad day. It is the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins and rose again, displaying his absolute power and authority over all so that there is now forgiveness and new life for all who believe here, now, and in eternity. And for that new life to happen, for that forgiveness to happen, Jesus had to go to the cross, had to suffer, had to die. That dark storm cloud that surrounds this story of light that we saw in the beginning It is closing in quickly, and that storm does eventually hit, and the darkness and evil carry out its wicked plan. But in the suffering and death of Jesus, there is good news. Good news that our sins have been dealt with, and that in the resurrection, there is good news of the power and glory of Jesus that cannot be stopped, quenched, or defeated. This is the God we serve the God who defeated sin and death and hell and the grave, the God who is matchless in awe and wonder, who is mighty and powerful, who is trustworthy and faithful. This is the God who she shows up to worship. And this reminder of who God is, let that be a catalyst to examine your own life. Find the areas where you, like this woman, can do what you can to serve and to worship Jesus regardless of the size of your worship, regardless of the size of the action of what you can do, realize that God will always take honest, humble, genuine acts of obedience and worship, and he will stretch those results farther than you could ever dream. This woman had her opportunity. She had her moment, and she went all in with Jesus, and she's honored because of it. Will you, when you have the moment to do what you can, go all in with Jesus? I can't answer that for you. So why don't we spend some time praying about that? Let's pray. God, you are good, and you're good all the time. Even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of chaos, even when it looks like the storms of life are going to ruin everything. You are good all the time. You are light all the time. God, give us hearts that want to serve, want to love, want to worship you all the time. Give us eyes to see these moments that you have set up ahead of time for us to step into. Give us the boldness and the courage to step into them when we feel that push, when we feel the Holy Spirit telling us to move. Give us the boldness to respond. Lord, for some today, that moment to step into is that first moment with you. Lord, if there's anyone who hears this, who doesn't know you, who doesn't have a relationship with you, who hasn't put their faith in you and you alone, in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, in what he has done, and that alone, Lord, I pray you break down whatever walls, whatever barriers, whatever things that are holding them back. Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself, your trustworthiness, your goodness. Reveal yourself to them so that they can step into that moment, so that you can then show them how many more moments the way that you have created them can affect other people. God, you have put value in us just by being us. 
Lord, give us the hearts, give us the minds, give us the intentionality to take that value and to worship you with it. To step into those moments you have created for us. And Lord, in those times and those places where we are confronted with the areas of our life, where the areas of our faith are weak, help us to not run from those weaknesses, but run rather to you and ask you to fill us up in those places, to make us strong where we are weak. Lord, as the man says when he interacts with Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, where there are areas in our lives, there are areas where we don't completely trust you, whether that be relationally or financially or any different number of ways, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to remember how trustworthy and good you are, how you are always going to keep your word, how you are always faithful, how you are always the good dad who cares for his kids, who is gentle and strong and passionate and loves us and wants to see us live into the best life, the life that glorifies you. God, as we go out into the world, Lord, I don't even want us to wait until tomorrow morning. Lord, today, show us moments. God, give us a moment today where we can step into, where we can worship you through the way we interact with others. Give us the boldness to do it. Help us to be the lights of the world you have called us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.